Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, good friends. Good to see you again on the Bill Press Pod. You know, something very significant happened last week, unfortunately, but understandably, because of the war in Ukraine, it got very little media coverage, but it is nonetheless an extremely important, indeed historic event that demands a lot more attention. For the first time ever, a congressional committee has accused a former president of breaking the law. That's the stunning conclusion of a brief filed in court last week by the bipartisan January 6th Select Committee that Donald Trump and his allies had engaged in what the committee identifies as a, quote, criminal conspiracy to prevent Congress from certifying the results of the 2020 election. Wow, Donald Trump leading a criminal conspiracy. So what happens next after that bombshell announcement? Can Congress file charges against Trump? Will the Justice Department file charges against Trump? Can a former president even be charged with a crime? Or even if true, can Trump still just get away with it? Well, for answers today, we check in with attorney Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, now professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School. Barbara McQuaid, Thank you for joining us, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Oh, thank you, Bill. My pleasure to be here with you. So, uh, last week, understandably, it didn't get a lot of attention because of the war in Ukraine, uh, but something very significant happened in Washington when the uh, Select Committee on January 6th filed a brief in court saying that they had evidence that Donald Trump and his allies engaged in a, their word, criminal conspiracy to block Congress from certifying the last election. Uh, In the realm of uh, legal actions and legal kind of news, how big a deal is this, Barbara? I think it's a very significant development. You know, obviously this is not criminal charge. In fact, the standard uh, in this civil case, you know, they're trying to defeat a claim by John Eastman that his communications with Donald Trump are protected by the attorney-client privilege. And so they're arguing that um, the crime fraud exception applies here. And so the standard there is that there's a good faith basis to believe that a crime may have been committed uh, to to require the judge to scrutinize it. So a much lower standard than um, needed to charge a crime. But this, for the first time, pulls together all the various threads of evidence that have been sort of dripping out that we've been hearing about some of the committee testimony. Um, And to me, the most significant part of it was they've attached it to a couple of crimes, conspiracy to defraud the United States and obstruction of an official proceeding, the certification vote. Um, They listed what, you know, we would refer to to as the actus reus of the crime, which I think has always been in plain sight, the the urging of Mike Pence to 
abuses authority in counting the votes. But what was really significant, I thought, was this collection of the mens rea, the intent, the knowledge by Trump that there was no fraud, because that's always the most difficult thing to prove in a case. So first of all, one immediate result is, or one immediate uh, consequence is that um, you cannot exert ex- assert executive privilege if a crime is committed by the actions you're talking about, right? Exactly. And in this case, he's uh, he's asserted not only executive privilege, but attorney-client privilege, which is one that typically can't be waived the way the president, President Biden, has been able to waive executive privilege. But you're right. If there is a crime or fraud and the privilege is being used just as a shield to cover it up, then the shield must give way. Do you know, is this the first time that a former president has been charged with a crime? Well, again, he hasn't been charged, but accused of a crime. I'm sorry, accused, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, um, I think President Nixon was named as an unindicted co-conspirator in some of the Watergate cases, so I suppose. But by name, uh, yes, I think so. Uh, Accused of a crime, um, you know, arguing that there is a a good faith belief that a crime may have been committed and then laying out all of the evidence. Uh, I think so. So what happens next? Is this just thrown out there? Or will there be follow-up, A, on the part of the committee, and B, on the part of the Justice Department? Well, the immediate reaction will be from the judge in this filing, and we'll make a decision as to whether uh, these documents are privileged or not. Although, I think he could do that without reaching this question. Um, As for the committee, I think they're going to continue to investigate. There are many people they have not yet heard from who could uh, provide some very important information. People in Trump's inner circle, like Mark Meadows, Ivanka Trump, and others that they'd like to hear from. I think they'll continue to push to see if they can shore up the evidence that they've amassed so far. And then I think the really interesting question is, what's happening at the Justice Department? Um, You know, no doubt they see this. Um, I'm one of the people who believes that they have to be investigating this. I know a lot Mm -hmm. of people think, where have they been? How can they be asleep on the job? But these cases take an enormous amount of time to put together when you are held to the standard they are, which is uh, proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And so uh, I'm sure they're paying attention. But to me, it, the thing that was so persuasive was the thing that is so elusive, uh, the evidence of Trump's knowledge and intent that there was fraud here. And so they listed um, his own cybersecurity chief, uh, Christopher Krebs, issued a statement that there was no fraud. William Barr, his own attorney general, issued a statement. All of William Barr's successors repeatedly told Trump, "There, what we've investigated all this, and there is no fraud. His own campaign wrote a memo. His director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, told him so. He lost 61 out of 62 court cases. The only one he won did mm. not have anything to do with the outcome of the election. It was about an affidavit. Um, and in fact, in the words of one judge who suspended the license of Rudy Giuliani, he said, um, there's not one scintilla of evidence that there was fraud here. So at some point, I think any jury would find that it is a reasonable conclusion to infer that Donald Trump knew there was no fraud here. So the committee is a select committee uh, a couple of months ago when Steve Bannon uh, refused to uh, respond to their subpoena. They asked the Justice Department to file charges against him. Could the select committee request the Justice Department to follow through and file criminal charges against the former president of the United States? Yes, they could. And in fact, they may do that when they get to the end of their investigation, but it's not necessary. The, um, when it's contempt of Congress, the statute actually requires a referral. So for the Steve Bannon contempt, that was a requirement because it says 
this is this is how we'd like to proceed as Congress, and we need your help, Justice Department. But when it comes to a criminal investigation, it may very well be that uh, the Justice Department allows uh, Congress to do its work, or w- would be very happy to receive all of the evidence that they have amassed through their process. But it's not necessary. They could, and I think, likely are investigating right now. And I I base that on the words of Merrick Garland on January fifth, when he said, as part of our January sixth investigation. We will look at anybody at any level, whether they were present or not, who attacked our democracy. Well, I am fascinated to hear you say that because I have been arguing with lawyer friends of mine uh, that I believe that Merrick Garland, that there already is an investigation very quietly, very much under wraps, underway at the Justice Department. Um, I'm excited to hear you say you share that same belief. You're brilliant, Bill. You no. and me, man. We're on <laughs> no. it. What, what is it based on? Give me some more confidence. Yeah, I think there are a few, a few things that we can look at. One is the delay in charging Mark Meadows after a referral from Congress for um, contempt. Uh, one reason for delay, you, you know, if, if they were going to decide not to charge him, they could have said so by now. Um, it could be that it's because they have bigger plans for him, that they see him as a target of the substantive crime and don't want to see him uh, used as a witness. Uh, there could be that. They have 18 devices belonging to Rudy Giuliani that were seized as part of their investigation into his uh, role as an agent on behalf of Ukraine. So there's that. They have subpoenaed billing records from Sidney Powell. All of these threads pull together to suggest that there is that is all part of an investigation. Um, Merrick Garland also said in that January 5th speech that we do not comment on uh, targets of investigation. We do not say who we're investigating. We neither confirm nor deny the existence of an investigation. And it's important to follow those norms even when we're in an extraordinary situation. In fact, it's even more important to follow the norms when we are in an extraordinary situation. And so uh, I think all of those things combined to suggest to me that they get it, that they're taking it seriously, and that they're investigating. And I think it can naturally spin out of the existing January 6th investigation, when he promises to investigate anyone at any level, whether present or not, who attacked our democracy. I see that as including the efforts by Trump and his inner circle to persuade Pence to refuse to certify the election results. Is one other argument just the logic that, uh, what if they filed charges against some 400 people so far or, or more who, who were arrested um, for taking place in the violence at the Capitol on January 6th, that they're, they're just not going to stop at foot soldiers, that they have to look at the people who sent the foot soldiers there? Absolutely. And that's always the way it's done. In fact, you know, you, you can compare it maybe to a hitman. It's not enough that you arrest the hitman. You want to find out the person who hired the hitman. That's the real criminal mastermind. And again, in Merrick Garland's January 5th speech, he said, you know, I know we've started with small cases, but this is the way the Justice Department works. We work on the simple cases and we build our way up to the more complex cases. Recently, we saw a guilty plea from one of the Oath Keeper defendants who pled guilty to uh, seditious conspiracy. He also agreed to cooperate The Justice Department does not give cooperation credit until first meeting with someone to see if they have something of value to share. This particular Oath Keeper, his name is Joshua James, is someone who was working with Roger Stone and has been photographed with him on January 6th, providing security to him. And we know Roger Stone was one of the people going to the Willard Hotel to help, you know, put together this strategy. And so it seems quite possible 
that members of this seditious conspiracy group, the Oath Keepers, if if not, you know, overt co-conspirators with this group may have information about what was going on. And so I think that they are following this typical pattern of the Justice Department to start small and build up. Uh, and in fact, you um, authored a a model prosecution uh, format, I guess, or outline for the Justice Department. Uh, mm-hmm. And how did that come about? And are they following it? Following it? Yeah, there's a great editor at the Just Security blog named Ryan Goodman who actually suggested. He said, "What do you think about?" what it would look like to draft a a model prosecution memo. Do you think the evidence is there? And I said, I don't know. Let me start working on it and see what we come up with (laughs) and see where it goes. And once we started gathering all of the pieces, it was, to me, a pretty strong case that if it's not ready to charge now, it's at least worth opening an investigation if it hasn't been done already. This model prosecution memo replicates what happens at the Justice Department. So I was a Justice Department lawyer for almost 20 years. And whenever you have a case other than the most routine, you know, a very routine drug case or gun case maybe doesn't require a prosecution memo. But otherwise, prosecutors prepare prosecution memos. And it is a place where you gather all of the evidence, uh, you argue whether it does or does not support certain statutory offenses. Perhaps you raise potential defenses that might uh, get raised by a defendant. And then you assess, number one, whether the case can be brought. Is there sufficient evidence such that it is probable that you can obtain and sustain a conviction? And then also the question of whether you should file criminal charges. Mm-hmm. That is, does this advance some substantial federal interest? And when I looked at it in that light, I mean, I'm sure reasonable minds could disagree, but I found a pretty strong case for not only that you can charge, but that you should. There are many reasons not to charge a former president. I mean, I don't think we want to get in the business of routinely uh, seeing administrations go after their predecessors or um, politicizing the Department of Justice when Merrick Garland, I think, came in for the purpose of restoring public trust and independence. But at some point, the attack that Donald Trump made on our democracy is so egregious. And there is the worry about future candidates doing the same. One of the main purposes for criminal prosecution is deterrence. And it seems to me that unless Trump and his group are held accountable, we will not adequately deter future threats to democracy. Uh, I was I was struck by the fact in your recent uh, Washington Post op-ed uh, about this uh, filing by the committee. Um, you um, you referred to it as quote gift wrapped for Merrick Garland, right? <laughs> like, okay, Attorney General, if you needed anything, <laughs> anything here it is, right? Take it and run with it. Yeah, so it's it's nice to see it all collected there in one spot. You know, they they pull together all the various threads, and I I think you know if, if you just follow the news cycle, these come out in dribs and drabs. But to see it all in one little package, it does make a pretty compelling case. Now, I, I a lot of people say, well, will this pressure Merrick Garland into bringing charges? I don't think uh, he is one to succumb to pressure. I think that he has um, been in public life long enough to know that uh, you are responsible for your own decisions, and he will make them. But I think it's hard to ignore this collection of evidence, if if he wasn't already paying close attention, I think he was, it's uh, it's hard to ignore this uh, very compelling package put together in just a few pages where you can kind of see the case staring at you in black and white. And so, um, as I said, and I agree with you, Bill, I'm hopeful that they're already on the job. But to the extent they weren't, uh, it's nice to see Congress pulling together these threads for them so that they can see it in one neat, tidy package. Well, what about the central question uh, we know that there's this Justice Department policy that a sitting president cannot be charged with a crime. Can a former president? 
president be charged with a crime? Yes, I think so. In fact, Robert Mueller uh, believed that to be the case when he argued in his prosecution memo, you know, the, the report that he issued in which he declined to accuse Donald Trump of a crime. And a big part of it was uh, this argument um, under the separation of powers and the role of the president that a sitting president cannot be charged with a crime. And the reason is that it would be too distracting to his responsibilities as president mm -hmm. to have to simultaneously defend himself in a criminal case. And it would also damage his power on the world stage to be under indictment in his own country. Right. But those arguments, of course, don't hold true when uh, we are in post-presidency. And in fact, even that policy is not binding. It's policy. It's not uh, law. But the Justice Department's own Office of Legal Policy or Legal Counsel, which um, writes these advisory opinions and informs policy, based its decision on that idea of how it would um, damage a sitting president from exercising his power. But as Robert Mueller said, once once he's out of office, all of that concern goes away. And um, uh, in fact, he wrote in his memo that one of the reasons he wrote his report and preserved that evidence was for future prosecutors when Donald Trump was no longer in office. When you look at the work of the select committee, um, what I saw this morning, just checking, they've interviewed over 650 witnesses so far, issued over 90 subpoenas. They plan on um, sort of trying to get their interviews done and to hold in order to hold public hearings in April and issue an interim report in June. Um, how do you assess the work of the committee? I think it's been incredible. Um, they are led by two former U.S. attorneys, one who served in the Obama administration, one who served in the Bush administration, and they really have been conducting this investigation the way prosecutors conduct investigations, um, bringing in witnesses, using subpoenas to get records so that the witnesses can be confronted with those records. You know, and sometimes they try to talk around things or be evasive, even though truthful. And when you confront them with a document, it's very difficult uh, to do that, to fool a questioner. So I think it's been very effective. They've also, uh, they've got a team of 40 lawyers and it's been very impressive what they've done because they've done a lot of these interviews. Uh, I mean, this is what prosecutors do. You do a lot of interviews kind of off screen, off stage, because sometimes they're the witnesses who don't really tell you anything useful or nothing new. It's duplicative of what you've already heard, or you have to take eight hours of testimony to hear one hour of something interesting. And so in these 550 interviews they've done to date. I'm sure they will pull together their greatest hits and then present it to the public in a very compelling way, which is what happens at a trial. You only hear kind of the, the you know the most compelling parts, the most persuasive parts. And I think by waiting until a moment, maybe in the summer, when the public has the bandwidth to pay attention to it, um, they can make a compelling case. And I think that's important when you're talking about charging a president. I think there will be concerns and certainly the defense will raise arguments that this is all a political witch hunt. You know, we've heard all this before. But <laughs> right. but if but if the facts are so compelling, and even coming from people like Pence's inner circle, which, you know, is some of what we're hearing about, or former Justice Department officials in Trump's own administration, I think that becomes much harder uh, to see as political. And there will certainly always be those in Trump's base who uh, are part of the group who, remember he said famously, uh, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue in the middle of the day and not, not lose any of my supporters. I think there, there's certainly some in that camp, but I think there are a lot of other people of good faith who would watch that and listen to it and read about it and say, wow, that's that's really compelling. And so I think that's what they're gearing up for by collecting all this information. I think they're doing an effective job. What is your sense of the timing? Uh, if 
the Mary Garland, uh, if the Department of Justice already has its own investigation quietly underway, and the mm-hmm. committee is wrapping up its work, let's say by well, at least the interim work by by June, when would a Department of Justice investigation become public and this move to the next level? Yeah, hard to say, but it takes it always takes way longer than than you think it does. Um, Merrick Garland even said in that January fifth speech, um, "Our work will take as long as it takes," and we set no deadline because what. And one thing that happens, I know that sounds sort of uh, evasive and, and frustrating, but one thing that happens when you investigate these cases is, say, you put in there um, Mike Pence's chief of staff, and he tells you some interesting things, but then he says. Um, you know, I was at a meeting and you ask him who else was at the meeting and he identifies some people. Well, now you want to talk to those people as well. Um, were, were there any documents relating to this meeting? Yeah, well, we sent some text messages and some emails and somebody wrote, took minutes. Well, now you want to get that. And so then you talk to those people um, and they tell you some things you didn't know. And so it's hard to know when you're done because there's always kind of one more rabbit hole to go down. But at some point you realize you've exhausted it. You've talked to everybody about all the key meetings. You've talked to all the people who are at the key meetings and you feel like you have a very good sense of of what was hap- happened at the key uh, events. And it may be that, you know, you've got a dozen episodes uh, that you've investigated and really only four of them matter to the outcome of the case. And so you ditch all that work that you did in those you know, other eight episodes and you focus on these four. But so you have to do a lot of work that ends up not really mattering in the long run, but you have to do it to make sure there's not some plausible defense that you weren't aware of. Mm-hmm. And you, you point out, and again, in your Washington Post op-ed, that for Merrick Garland, um, it's a lot more complicated, right, than it is for the mm-hmm. committee, and that there's one additional test that he has to prove before he moves. Yeah, not, not only does he have to decide whether a crime was committed, and again, the standard's so much higher, beyond a reasonable doubt. So you would want to put all these key witnesses in the grand jury and really push their memories to make sure they're not just kind of spitballing, you know, that they, mm-hmm. when they mm-hmm. testify that Donald Trump said X, their recollection is clear or they have documents to support it. You know, it, it can't just be, you know, musings and other kinds of things, real evidence. But the other question, as you point out, is not only can a crime be charged, but whether it is in the best interest of the country to file charges. You may remember that Gerald Ford famously said when pardoning uh, Richard Nixon, our long national nightmare was over. He believed it was in the best interest of the country to move on, that we not spend all of this time and energy focusing on something that happened in the past. Um, but I think in this case, Merrick Garland will have to make a hard decision about all the negative consequences of charging a former president, the politicization and the outcry and the loss of public confidence that it may cause um, and the precedent it will it would set. But um, I sometimes now think back that what if Richard Nixon had been held accountable? Would that have prevented a future Donald Trump from doing what he had done? And so I shudder to think what might come down the road in the future if we don't hold Donald Trump accountable now. And there's other news about Donald Trump, uh, Barbara, which I'd like to ask you about. Let's take a quick break, if you can hold there for just a second, and we'll come back with uh, today's guest, Barbara McQuaid, who is the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and a professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School. It's the Bill Press Pod. Today, I want to take a moment to talk about something I care about. I know you do, too, a functioning democracy. Now, maybe you've noticed, but there's been a lot of bad news on that front recently. I know it can be tempting to tune it all out, but it's so important that we stay engaged. The good news is that there are 
tangible ways that we can all help fix things. And here's one way. A bunch of us in the podcast community have partnered with Represent Us, a nonpartisan organization to spread the word about efforts to protect our elections and pass laws that'll make our government truly of, by, and for the people again. We're doing this because America faces urgent anti-democratic threats. 19 states passed laws last year that make it harder to vote. Election workers across the country are quitting in droves because of threats and harassment. There's a coordinated campaign to put people in charge of our elections who don't believe in democracy. But there are things that we can do together to ensure free and fair elections. So if you care about the state of our democracy like we do, it's time for all of us, independents, progressives, and conservatives, to put country over party and take a stand. I ask you to check out represent.us slash podcast to learn more. That's represent.us, represent.us slash podcast. Please check it out and get involved. Thank you. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're back. Our guest attorney, Barbara McQuaid, you see her on television, you read her in the Washington Post and other places, speaking about the legal events of the day, particularly surrounding uh, Donald Trump and the work of the January 6th Select Committee. Uh, Barbara, we've been talking about what's going on in Washington with the Select Committee. Meanwhile, up in New York City, two federal prosecutors have resigned because they felt that the new district attorney of Manhattan was not willing to proceed with an indictment of Donald Trump. Uh, what does that tell you? Should we be concerned about that? Um, How does this fit in? Yeah, you know, we don't know all that much about what happened there, but I do think it does not bode well for uh, the filing of criminal charges in a case like that. It's interesting, the fact that they both resigned on the same day 
mm-hmm. without you know um, a public announcement about why or where they're going does suggest to me that there was um, you know a bit of a protest um, comment attached to their resignation and so it may very well be that they believe that there was a prosecutable case and that the new elected prosecutor there Alvin Bragg has concluded otherwise although what was interesting is after they resigned he said that the investigation will continue so it seems like there is some difference of opinion as to the direction of the case. Um, and there's this assumption that uh, Alvin Bragg thinks less of the case than the prosecutors do. But I guess until we see more, it's difficult to know what that is. Um, you know, to date, we haven't seen much come out of this. But again, as we discussed, sometimes investigations can take a very long time. And so uh, I don't know that the lack of action should t- tell us anything. And one thing that has been you know, kind of interesting is we know a lot about the civil case that's being conducted by the attorney general in New mm-hmm. York, Letitia James, and she's publicly filed uh, briefs with some pretty egregious facts. And you would think that um, those same facts are facts under consideration by uh, the criminal prosecutors. But, you know, the, the standard is different. The mens rea is different. You know, criminal intent is different. And it may be that it's difficult to connect some of those facts to Donald Trump. You know, some of the facts like um, he overstated the square footage of his apartment at Trump Tower from 10,000 square feet to 30,000 square feet, you know, pretty objective lie, if if it can be proved, Um, that uh, there was one property that was assessed at $200 million one year and $400 million the next. (laughs) And then we know the Mazars accounting firm stepped away and said, we no longer stand by our financial statements for the past 10 years for the Trump organization, you know, all of those things suggest that there, there could be some serious wrongdoing there. And so then to see this happen simultaneously is a bit of a head scratcher, but I think it's one where we'll just have to wait and see, but it, it's kind of sounds like a protest, or, you know, resignation and protest. They didn't make a stink. They just left. So clearly some sort of difference of opinion as to how the case ought to proceed. Right. And whatever happens, it's totally independent of and of the work of the January 6th committee and dealing with a totally different set of issues. Right? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely different. Now, I can't resist asking you about a new book um, that comes out today um, by the attorney, former attorney general of the United States. You've mentioned him a couple of times, uh, William Barr, who basically said in his new book that I'm the only person who uh, had the guts to stand up to Donald Trump and save our democracy, which is a little different image of what we the image we had of Bill Barr while he was Attorney General, uh, who seemed to be doing anything Donald Trump wanted him to do to undermine Robert Mueller. What's your assessment of Bill Barr as Attorney General? Uh, I think he was uh, a, a big Trump enabler until the end. I do think that in December of 2020, he did stand up to him and refused to perpetuate the fraud that Donald Trump wanted to perpetuate. <clears throat> and he got, you know, he, you know, he resigned and uh, as a result of that. So I think at that moment, it was a good thing. But before we canonize him as a hero, you know, a couple of things to note. Number one is, <laughs> I wish he'd said this out loud, right? I mean, he, he waited until he could profit about it in a book. Yep. If, imagine if he had gone to Congress and testified about it at the impeachment proceeding in January of 2021. I think there's a very good chance that the outcome would have been different there, that he would have been convicted. And that would mean he can never serve as president again. So that would have been really important. If he really wants to save democracy, he should have spoken up when he when the event happened as opposed to waiting until he could make a profit. I also note that he uh, was a facilitator of Donald Trump's um, 
misconduct throughout, uh, you know, spinning the outcome of uh, Robert Mueller's report uh, and uh, intervening in the cases of uh, Roger Stone and Michael Flynn, um, even talking about fraud in advance of the election, helping to lay the groundwork for that disinformation campaign. So uh, he's no hero. I think at, at a certain moment he did say, this is even too much for me. But I think there are many other things he could have done differently and better if he had wanted to serve the public. Do you believe that he undermined the independence or the at least the reputation for independence by, of the Justice Department and uh, is going to take a while to get that back? Yes, I do. I think he um, used the Justice Department in a way to advance Trump's political agenda in a way that has caused harm to the department. And I'll cite just a couple of examples. Um, one was when he intervened in the case of Roger Stone. Another mm -hmm. was when he intervened in the case of Michael Flynn. In the case of Flynn, dismissing uh, a case for false statements after Flynn had pled guilty on um, the question of materiality, which is completely inconsistent from the way the department uh, interprets that, that element in every other case. Uh, in the case of Stone, instead of letting the prosecutors ask for a sentence within the sentencing guidelines, asking for a sentence substantially lower than that. Um, and you know, he said that, that, that I was just doing what I thought was right. I have the power to do that as the attorney general. Yes, he does. But of all the tens of thousands of cases that the Justice Department prosecuted during his tenure, those are the only two where he stepped in and said, <laughs> I think we should change the outcome of these cases. So I think that damaged the department. Um, in the words of, of a judge said that William Barr distorted what would, what happened in the Mueller report, what was written in the Mueller report. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is seen as uh, as politics. So yeah, I think it does damage the department, which since Watergate has worked very hard to maintain um, its independence um, from the White House. And uh, I think that one of Merrick Garland's missions, if not his top mission, has been to restore uh, that independence, um, which is why I think charging the president will be a particularly challenging decision for him. A particularly challenging decision. So uh, let's wrap coming back to that question where we spent the first half of our interview talking about what in your mind would be the impact if, in the end, no charges are filed against Donald Trump, Donald Trump is not held responsible uh, for the insurrection on January 6th, and Donald Trump, in effect, walks away. I think it would be very damaging to the future of our democracy because I think that it will only embolden him and empower others to try to do this again. If they see that, you know, nobody wants to touch this because it's a political hot potato, then I, I think that gives people, you know, the, the opposite effect of deterrence. It encourages this kind of bad behavior. So if the evidence is not there, I think it would be important for Merrick Garland to come out and explain why he is not pursuing charges, um, what the evidence did not show. Because I think otherwise it suggests that a former president is above the law in a way that the rest of us you know, are not and must comply with it. And I think that would be a harmful message to send. Barbara McQuaid, thank you so much for your good work. Uh, and thanks for getting the word out there on many different forums, including here today on the Bill Press Pod. Thanks, Barbara. Good to talk to you. Thank you, Bill. And that's it for today's podcast on a very, very important topic with Barbara McQuaid. She's so great. And by the way, Barbara has her own podcast called Sisters-in-Law with attorneys Joyce Vance and Jill Weinbanks. Check that out. And also check out the episode notes to today's podcast here on the Bill Press Pod. 
for a link to Barbara McQuaid's model prosecution memo for the Justice Department uh, on uh, Donald Trump and January 6th, which we talked about with her, and also a link to the op-ed that she recently wrote for the Washington Post about uh, what Merrick Garland should do in response to the January 6th filing. Uh, Again, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back on Friday with our Reporters Roundtable. A lot going on in Washington this week. Of course, we'll be tracking the war in Ukraine, uh, keeping on top of Congress's efforts to send even more aid and the Biden administration, more aid up to $10 billion to Ukraine, and whether or not the United States actually bans imports of oil from Russia. We'll talk about all of that and a lot more on Friday. So take care of yourselves. Come back on Friday and join us for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.